All right, well, if you haven't noticed, um, it's, it's Easter Sunday, right? And so if, uh, we're really, really glad that we have all gathered here this morning to lift up the name of Jesus and to really kind of go after exactly what he says is important in life. And so we have all gathered here to see what he has for us. And so we're excited that you're here, and we're excited about opening up the Scriptures. Now, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We've printed it out on the front side of, of your paper, and so that's, that's true, um, that uh, you will have all of those at your disposal, and I'll be able to walk us through all of those passages. Easter, all right, at the core, at the, kind of the center of Easter, is this idea of hope, right? And who doesn't need a little bit of hope, right? I mean, like, if you're a parent in here, you're looking for hope, right? If you're a spouse in here, you're looking for hope. If you're a teacher, right, a principal, right, you're looking for hope. If you're a small business owner, you're looking for ways in which we are looking for hope. And at the core of, this, of the Easter message is this idea that hope is possible. This idea of our past or this idea of our current circumstances, that there is a chance that whatever it is back there or right here, that there's something in front of us that may change. And so that mountain of debt that you're sitting in right now, that there might, wouldn't it feel good if there was a hope that the debt could just be disappeared just like that? Our hearts would just, just immediately just come to, to life. Or if you're a student and you're just being crushed by this idea that I will never, ever graduate, the idea that a degree, a degree would just be handed to you, man, hope in the next thing would just fill our heart and soul. Well, Jesus comes not just to those who are in debt or those who need degrees, but he's walking into each of our lives with this idea of hope, this idea that your current circumstance right? The things that have happened in your past, the thing that's going on, that there is a hope out there. And that's why Easter happens in the springtime, because rebirth happens. Renewal happens in the springtime. How cool is it to see dead trees and dark grass burst forth into green? Amen? I mean, it is just an amazing, this fresh air, minus the pollen, but the fresh air, nonetheless, and the green, it is this rebirth of this renewal that happens. And it's in that little R-E word, re, rebirth, is this idea that something is about to happen. What Jesus comes to us and he says, he says, hey, I'm going to give you not just it, but I'm going to give you life and life to the full. That's what Easter is all about. This idea that you and I get to have life not just here, but in all eternity. He's come to redefine it all for us, folks. And it really is awesome. And so we're going to ask one question. We're going to keep it really simple. Hopefully the preacher will keep it short. We're just going to ask one question. What did Easter accomplish? That's the one question. What exactly did Easter accomplish? Let me rattle off a couple of things for you just to give you some answers, because if you are a little bit OCD and you want to write in some answers, right? but let's, let's give it to you. So number one, we know that Easter Sunday glorifies the Father. There's God in heaven, and we know that something happened on Easter Sunday that glorified the Father. We know that because of Easter Sunday, God the Father and God the Son, that Jesus is exalted, that somehow, someway, something that happened on Easter Sunday actually brings praise to the Son. 
not just the glorification of the Father or the exaltation of the Son. We know that sin and death and even Satan himself are defeated on Easter. That is good news, right? For all that to happen, the Father and the Son to be exalted, for sin, death, and Satan to be defeated all in one day, man, that's the type of thing that I want to be about, and that's what Easter is about. However, there's more than that. Even as great and as beautiful and powerful and game-changing as that is, as I read our scripture over and over and over this week, as I heard it read, as I read it out loud, as I read it silently in repetition, as I prayed through it and over it, there's something that happened in this passage. Line by line by line by line, I begin to notice something, something different, something that I hadn't even noticed before, that line by line, I started to see people, and I started to see personalities, and I started to hear real people's names. And so what did Easter Sunday accomplish? Easter Sunday accomplished something else other than the glorification, exaltation, and the defeat of all that, that Easter Sunday, that God allowed us people to have access to him. If you don't get anything else this morning, it's the fact that Easter, right, allowed us people to have access to God. So just look to your neighbor and say, we've got access to God. We've got access to God. Say it again a little louder. That will change your life. Here we go. Mark chapter 15, access to God. Change people and their access to God. Verse 37 and following. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And a curtain, this is verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the son of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. And he went in, or when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him in Jerusalem. And so what did, Jesus, what did Easter accomplish? Easter accomplished the fact that we have access to God. And so what types of people have access to God? Well, in this passage, we see the types of people that get access to God are outsiders. And so point number one is that outsiders in this text actually become insiders. So what types of people, because of Easter, have access to God himself? People who do not belong. First and foremost, what do we see? We see a Roman centurion. If you're Jewish, the arch enemy of all Jewishness are these Gentile dogs called Romans. They have been your oppressors for centuries. And they have caused all kinds of frustration to you. And so the fact that when we open up our scriptures and we see Jesus breathe his last, the fact that the very first character that we see is an actual Roman should bring shock to us. 
An outsider actually becomes an insider. A Roman centurion, the ones who have been the oppressive ones, are actually the ones to be freed. And what you don't know, possibly, is about this statement. Truly, this is the Son of God. We have been through this gospel for chapter after chapter after chapter. And do you, not, do you know there's not been one human declare Jesus' identity correctly? This is the very first confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And the very first human to utter this confessional, this idea that Jesus is who he said he is, was a Roman, an outsider. The outsiders become an insiders. And it gets a little bit, a little more saucy here. Because the second audience is not just a Roman, but women. A bunch of women. All right, some are listed by name and then other, the others are just called, and then there's other women. And the reason that this is unique is, look at this. In verses 40, you see this. And then there were also women. That's important, right? So keep your finger there and then go all the way down to verse 47. Now Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. There is another list, number two. Now go to 16.1 and you see this. And it was Sabbath, the Sabbath was passed, and there was Mary Magdalene, Mary, uh, the son of, uh, of James. So three times... In nine verses, we get a list of women. Now, scholars have all kinds of problems with this text because they're saying, why is Mark being so specific here? Why is he listing people by name? Because these are eyewitnesses to three significant accounts. Who was witnessing Jesus crucified? Who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' crucifixion? Women. And then... Who was there when they put Jesus in a tomb and rolled the stone away? Who was there as eyewitnesses? The women. And then it should not be any surprise who actually saw with their eyes peeled, the stone rolled away, and an empty tomb. These women. Three different times, nine verses, the same set of gals have their eyes on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And here is why it is important. Because in the first century, in the Jewish and even Roman cultures, women were dismissed and women were put aside. And if there was some kind of court of appeal, women were not allowed to be eyewitnesses. And here we have in the gospel accounts, not once, not twice, but three times, not just at the crucifixion, not just at the burial, but the death, burial, and resurrection, literally the gospel moment, we have women at the center and is our eyewitnesses. And the reason this is important is because the people that are speaking on behalf of Jesus first are people who've been shoved aside, people who have literally been silenced. What Jesus does and what Jesus accomplishes is that he is bringing outsiders and making them insiders. If you're a Roman, if you're a pagan, if you are a secular person, guess what? You have a place here in this kingdom. If you have been ostracized and pushed aside, guess what? There is a place for you in this new kingdom. This is what Jesus is offering to us this morning. And so some of you feel like your past is just too much. Some of you believe that what you've done back there is just way too much, that God would never forgive you of that. 
Well, in all three lists, there's a lady, and her name is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, the scriptures tell us, had seven evil spirits, and she was truly the dregs of society, in which she was probably the, the, the darkest, probably the dirtiest, and probably the one that was outcast the most. And here we have our King Jesus welcoming her into the tribe, not once, not twice, but all three times we hear Mary Magdalene's name. If you feel like you're on the outskirts of Christianity, if you feel like God will never accept you because of what you've done, if you feel like you have out the kingdom, may it not be this morning. Help you feel free. Make you feel accepted because Jesus is saying, come on, because those outsiders, it was strategic because all of us would be those pagans. All of us would be those secularists. All of us would have a past that we were ashamed of. And Jesus is saying, you've got a place here. And so what exactly is the Easter message? The Easter message is pretty simple. You have to understand death and you have to understand life. The Easter message can be broken down into those two words, death, like dead, dead, death, and life, like I'm really alive, life. Let's pick up this passage. Here we go. And so as the women um, and many other women who had been with him to Jerusalem, verse 42, and so this is the gospel message. This is Easter morning. And when evening had come, this is dead, dead, like really dead. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why? Because the body of Jesus was dead. Now, Pilate he was surprised to hear that, uh, that he should have already died. Another conf confirmation that there's a dead body, and Pilate is now surprised that it happened so quickly. And so what did Pilate do? He summoned the centurion. This is a professional kind of morgue guy. He just, he knows death. So he summoned the centurion and asked him whether he was already dead. I want you, and I want you to confirm this. And when he had learned from the centurion, an eyewitness, that dude is dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted what? The corpse. A cold, dead, decaying corpse to Joseph. Jesus is not just swooned. Jesus is dead, like dead dog dead. Verse 46, to confirm it even more, Joseph took this dead body, right, took, brought a linen shroud and taking him down off the cross, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Jesus is dead, like really, really dead. And so Easter is death. Before you understand Easter, you have to understand that's death. Over and over in this passage, we see proof, both secular, right, and Jewish eyewitnesses that what we have here is a dead body. 
You can go to the forensic. You can go to the DA's office. You can do all of these things, and everybody pronounces Jesus dead. To understand Easter, you have to understand that Jesus, truly this was the Son of God, truly died. We have to believe that. If he just passed out, or if he just swooned, or if he was just lacked consciousness, then he would not have been able to pay the price that he said he paid. And so this is Holy Week. And what we saw this week is on our, on our screens is um, a relic, a beautiful relic, a cathedral that was 800 years old come into flames. We actually saw a spire that had been there for 100 years collapse. We then saw timbers, these are what's called the oak forest, which is the ceiling made in, in, in uh, Notre Dame. What we saw are these, that what we call the old forest. This 800-year-old trees just go up in a second. What took 200 years to build and had been in existence for 800 years that had seen some of the greatest moments in history, whether it be a coronation of a king or at the end of a war, this underneath this roof, we have seen it all, the best and maybe even the worst of humanities, but it has outlasted generation after generation. But even as strong and beautiful and pristine as this chapel is, Notre Dame, truly the moment, I mean, more people visited Notre Dame than the Eiffel Tower. I mean, like, like three or four fold. I mean, this is the iconic moment in France. Here, you go see it because it's amazing. In two short hours, a place that once stood strong and secure was ablaze. And the entire French world paused. And the whole entire world stopped and just kind of gasped at, like, how can that happen? In two hours, something that stood for that long and cost that much to build was truly, you know, stained. It was truly singed. The president of, of France was the most interesting because he vowed this will be rebuilt and it will be more beautiful than ever before. And with that one pronouncement, this thing will be built, rebuilt again. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars started pour in. Why? Because people want things to be put back in its place. But here's the story of Notre Dame. There will be hundreds of millions of dollars collected and it will be rebuilt and it will be beautiful and millions of people will be able to look up at its cathedrals and maybe worship and maybe not. However, there will be another 100 years or 800 years and that thing will collapse. You know why? Because it's not meant to last forever. What Jesus offers us is not just a pretty building or a pretty self or to be all kind of made up or for people to be inspired by us, but he gives us something that can never be touched, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so in a world filled with sprinkler systems and fire-retardant materials, in a place full of, of cameras and sensors and, and, and just up-to-date like fire 
stuff, like all of the science of this world and all of the mathematics of this world and all of the help that this world can offer, it will all come crashing down. Just stare at the ashes of Notre Dame. And this is what our current world will look like. And Jesus says, but I will take the past and I will take present. I will give you hope. It's not just, I'm not going to just come fix your problems. What I'm going to come is give you something brand new, and this is Easter morning. I've come to give you something brand new. Jesus also offers us life. Not just death, but he offers us life. And when Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, they brought spices. Do you know why? Because they expected a dead body so that they might go and anoint him, also thinking that he was dead. It was very early on the first day of the week, and when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And they looked and they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. They came across something that they did not expect. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe. We know from other accounts, this was an angel. And they were alarmed, because that's what you do when you see an angel. They're alarmed. And when he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Easter is not just about death. It has to be about life. He has risen. He is not here. See, the place where you laid him, and he just points to an empty tomb. What Easter is about is not just death, but truly life. What we are offering you this morning is not just a fix. What we're offering is something brand new. The things that we're offering this morning is just this idea that we can come into a relationship with a real person, Jesus Christ. And so who does this life belong to? Who does this message, who, who should it land on? And let me tell you, these are the people that, that get this new, this, this new life. Verse 7 says this, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he was going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going to go before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And so who gets the gospel message? The disciples and Peter. And in my scriptures, I've actually circled Peter. Because it was to the disciples, but very specifically to Peter. Who gets access to the Father? People, outsiders who were once insiders. But also the people who get this good news are people who are filled with shame. Because the people with shame, Peter and the disciples, are actually called by name by a loving Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus. You see what happened to Peter. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me. And Jesus says, no, I won't. And Jesus goes, yes, you will. He says, instead of not just deny me, you're going to deny me three different times. Peter says, may it never be. They didn't walk into 
um, uh, a forest or a meadow or something like that. And Jesus says, I want you to stay up, Peter, and I want you to pray. And I want you to stay awake while I'm praying. I want you to pray. And you know what Peter does? <laughs> he falls asleep. Jesus is then arrested, right? And Jesus, or Peter then kind of bows up on the people and tries to be all manly, right? It's like, let him go. And so then follows Jesus into a trial and overhears some things. But at that point in the story, there are three different occasions where people come up to Peter and says, hey, are you with him? Are you with the guy who just got arrested and is about to be beaten? And Peter says, not once, not twice, but three times, I have no idea. He's not with me. And so when you hear this passage, now go and tell the disciples and Peter what Jesus is saying to you and me. You have totally blown it. You could have totally blown it, and I still want you in relationship with me. So here's an angel. I don't know what time this happened, but here's an angel. And he's having a conversation with Jesus. And with Jesus, I mean, he just is breathing new life. He's just been raised from the dead. And do you know the very first conversation Jesus is having with this, with this angel? He's having a conversation, not about the glories of heaven. Or man, did you not see that? What is he talking about? He's talking about Peter. He's talking about the disciples. He's talking about the people that have run and hid and scared and denied him. This is who this this message is for. The people who deny him and are scared because he is going to go before you and there you will see him just as he told you. He wants us to be in relationship with him. Throughout the New Testament, we hear of God the Father being holy and unreachable and, and humanity being full of sin and just tainted. And the two are just diametrically opposed to one another. And yet with Jesus, Jesus becomes the bridge between the two realities. And he says, you can now be in relationship with my Father. And so this morning, you may be asking yourself, how do I start this relationship? How do I begin a relationship like this? I am an outsider. I want to be an insider. I am living a life of shame. And you're saying that it's possible? And so let's just walk through this and you simply say these things to Jesus. It's very simple. It's coming straight from our passage this morning. You simply say this. You declare with the women, that maybe, just maybe, you're a little afraid, afraid right now. Even those who are closest to Jesus have a hard time swallowing. And so maybe you just admit your fear. That's how you become a follower of Jesus. That's how you start. You just be honest with him. Number two, that you declare, like, like Peter, I have denied you. I don't deserve this. I am a sinner, and yet you have accepted me. The third thing you do is very simpler, very simply, you declare as the Roman centurion declared, this is the Son of God. You declare his worthiness. You also, you walk in with Joseph of Arimathea, and what you do is you say, I'm looking to the kingdom, And I'm going to take, I'm going to have to have some courage to take a step into this relationship. And then you repeat 
as the angel has, has said to us, he is risen. He is not here. This is how you respond to Jesus. As the Roman says, this is the Son of God. As Peter, who has been shoved away and yet brought back into relationship, and as the angel, you look at an empty tomb and say, he is risen. And he is wanting to offer us life too, to, uh, to you and me. And so let us pray now and ask Jesus to examine our hearts, to see if he wants to do something in our own hearts. So Jesus, I pray that even now, in the quietness of an Easter morning, that Jesus, that you are doing a, a bold work in our own lives. Father, we pray that we are clearing the clutter of our hearts and that we are willing with Joseph Joseph of Arimathea had to take courage to take the body of Jesus. And so are you willing to take Jesus this morning? Are you willing to start a relationship with Jesus this morning? Jesus died for sin. He died for your sin. Jesus is now alive, defeating both sin, hell, and the grave. And what Jesus has done is he has allowed people access to him. Outsiders, insiders, those full of shame can now be restored back to Jesus himself. So this is what, Je this is what Easter accomplishes. That he has made a way for you. This morning we want every one of us to respond in some way, somehow. When you came in this morning, you were given a, a blue postcard and access to a pen. In the quietness of this moment, we would encourage all of you in here, kids, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, husbands, wives, people who don't believe in Jesus, people who want to start a, 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 a relationship with Jesus. And we would encourage you to use that blue card and for you to write down how you want to be prayed for. And for some of you, you will simply need to write, I want to start a relationship with Jesus this morning. If that's you, we would just encourage you boldly to take courage to write that on your card. So spend a few minutes examining your heart, examining the life and death of Jesus, and ask the Lord, how can or how would you request prayer this morning? And so everyone, go ahead and grab your cards and your, and your pen and have a conversation with the Lord this morning.